Fundamentalism isn't just an option, it's the only game in town. Um, since the demise of logical positivism, there is no foundationalist project that really works. And so everybody is in the position of um, basing their life to some extent on things that they can't prove. So do you think it's that we have to we have to bring an axe to capitalism to to fix this? It's a very good question. Um, Can I ask you a question? Okay, sure. Um, so what are the, in the new script, what are yeah. the fundamental beliefs? What are the things okay, that are really okay. core? Yeah. In today's podcast, we're featuring Professor Gordon Menzies. Uh, Gordon is a current Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Technology, Sydney. Gordon first obtained his first class honours degree from the University of New England in 1985. He won the Robert Jones Prize for Best Masters student at the ANU University in 1997, and consequently, he won a Commonwealth scholarship to undertake doctoral studies at the Oxford University. Uh, he won UTS University-wide Teaching Award in 2008 and received a subsequent uh, prize in teaching. Uh, prior to joining UTS in 2003, he was in the room of policymakers during the transformation of the Australian economy by Hawke and Keating governments. From 1986 until 2003, he was the economist at the Reserve Bank of Australia, and in the mid-90s, he was seconded to the Australian Federal Treasury as an economic modelling consultant. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for joining me, Gordon. So uh, before we jump into the first question, there's a there's a, a little t a story, a very small story that I wanted to tell you. So it's a, it's a fictional story by David Foster Wallace. It's just three lines, and it's quite simple, but I think it... Uh, dives into your book nicely. So the story goes, there are two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and eventually one of them looks at the other one and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> so I, I think uh, this uh, idea, this notion of water is uh, telling because it is talking about what is around us constantly and seemingly is invisible at the same time. And so I thought we could begin with uh, uh, diving into your book, which is Western Fundamentalism, mm -hmm. and asking you, you know, what is your view on fundamental, fundamentalism and how in the West are we uh, fundamentalists? Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I love the story because uh, what some philosophers call the social imaginary, how people think of the world, uh, which is all around us, mm -hmm. um, often uh, gives things the status of common sense, things that seem right to us, uh, whereas in different times and different places they mightn't seem right at all. Mm. Um, I suppose the idea of um, a fundamentalist, as I use it in my book, is to say that um, we, all have, um, we all have a number of beliefs, but some of them are more basic than others. Mm. And so uh, where you go to for your basic beliefs or what I call fundamentals is, is it determines a lot of things about you and about your detailed opinions. Mm. So sometimes when you hear people arguing about detailed opinions, what's really driving it is their, is their kind of basic beliefs. So what's a fundamental? Well, if we think about other people, it's often easier to see it than we think about ourselves. Mm. So if we think, say, of a radical feminist, um, they might think that the patriarchy, the um, entrenched male power, is 
is the sort of go-to explanation whenever they're trying to explain anything in society, they'll reach for the patriarchy mm-hmm. and use that as their explanation. Or there might be you might be a Marxist and you might think that um, economic privilege or economic production, in a sense, drives everything else in society and lots of other things that we think are important are just mm-hmm. illusions and rationalisations based on our position of economic privilege. Mm. And so these are two examples of, as it were, fundamental beliefs of those sorts of people. So what sort of fundamentalists fundamentalists are Westerners? Well, I think Westerners have a particular conception of freedom which plays out in three areas. And um, I got the idea from the three areas. It didn't come from me, actually. It came from an experience I had in Mm -hmm. Oxford. But I think um, that Westerners value freedom very, very highly, and you see that in their attitudes to politics, in their attitudes to economics, and in their attitudes to sex. Mm. And um, I've called the bundle of those three things together a sort of valuing of freedom in those three areas, Mm. Western fundamentalism. Mm. I mean, I think that's pretty succinct, and I think we can dive into a bit more of first principles. I I think this, uh, this idea of first principles perhaps in a, uh, at least from my view, is not as uh, focused on from an education perspective in terms of focusing on what are your fundamentals, how do you establish what your fundamentals are and how you develop your fundamentals. Mm. Uh, What is the importance of what you call fundamentals in developing your thinking? And how do you think Westerners use these, uh, uh, how these fundamentals such as uh, sexual freedom, economic economics, democracy, how these things play out in society and what they do? Well, I think that the first thing to say is that being aware of your first principles makes you a much better conversationalist. Mm. Um, so I think, in, you know, we live in a society where not all, but some conversation is quite hostile and fraught mm-hmm. and, um, frankly, bigoted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, we're all aware of what we might call negative conversation virtue. So it's a a negative conversation virtue to not denigrate someone or to not cut over them and listen to them. Mm -hmm. So these are examples of, as I call them, negative conversation virtues because they're things that you shouldn't do Mm -hmm. uh, because if you do them, you erode the conversation, communicate lack of respect to the person and so on. So people are pretty aware of that, not that they always practice it. (laughs) Um, And um, I have to watch myself too. Sometimes I find myself um, interrupting people. So so they're, they're, that is certainly a, a conversation virtue worth cultivating. But being aware of your basic principles and being prepared to name them and try and sensitively and open-mindedly discover what the other person's basic principles are, I think that's also a conversation virtue. It's a positive conversation virtue. Mm-hmm. If you can name where you're coming from and you can truly understand where the other person's coming from, then I think that is a very powerful conversation virtue. And um, so if you find yourself in a hostile argument with someone about a detailed opinion, it's worth just stepping back a bit and, and seeing, perhaps taking a different road, mm. thinking about um, their, their fundamental beliefs, their first principles. Mm. And it's often when you are able to locate what the fundamental belief is, that's actually when you can start having some uh, meaningful engagement uh, mm. because you're, you're identifying the argument from its... Uh, base level and then from there you can move on to maybe uh, completely moving on from the argument because you know you're not going to agree because your fundamentals are at odds or at least you can start identifying areas of agreement and then that's when 
a more, yes. a yes. more productive conversation can happen. I agree, I agree with you, Xavier. And so, for example, suppose you and I were having an argument about, um, um, say, abortion, and, um, uh, and I was in favour of abortion and you weren't. Mm. And then supposing it, it, supposing we ask the question, well, um, uh, what do you mean by a life? Mm. Yes. That's a good question because, um, or even going back a step further, what could we agree on? We might both agree that preserving life and minimising suffering in this debate is a good thing. Mm. We might both agree on that. But then when it comes time to ask the question, what is a life or when does one attain life, Mm. If I were arguing for abortion, I might say that it's not until birth and you might say something different. Yeah. And at that point, we would have a different understanding of each other than if we were just waving placards at each other and screaming at each other because mm. we would know there's something that we share. And I think if we were honest, uh, we would say that in some of these things, actually, I, I believe a lot of things, it's not possible to prove your basic beliefs. Mm. You can test them. You can, um, you can be aware of how you came to hold them uh, and you can be aware of other people's basic beliefs. But when you realise that some of these things are difficult to prove, mm. then you also can gain a kind of sympathy with somebody because yeah. you realise that they're not stupid because they disagree with you. You realise that, well, they're coming from a different spot and um, we're all trying to uh, get a truth, which is not a straightforward thing in life. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that... Uh, that was one of the uh, poignant things I read from your books, and it sort of is linked to this idea that I'm. And there's a book called Sapiens, which is quite popular. That I'm reading now, and one of the one of the key ideas that comes out of that book is that um, before the agricultural revolution, uh, the author Harari says we had the cognitive revolution, and this is whereby uh, societies, when they were expanding in their group size beyond about 150 people. Um, why was why did Homo sapiens what what differentiated them from other Homo species so Homo erectus Neanderthals and he posits that the reason is that we are able to construct narratives myths stories and we're able to believe them so strongly that that we're able to then organize societies on a mass scale and I think when he lo he looks at these two really uh, really interesting examples so he looks at uh, America on its foundations in 1776, and then 1776 BC, which there was, uh, I think it's in uh, in uh, modern-day Iran, but there was something called the Hammurabi Code, and basically mm -hmm. he looks at how the code, the laws back then versus the laws in 1776, so the Americans posit that individual freedom, human rights, these ideas are something that are very, very important to, to society. And yet in the Hammurabi Code, there's a very big distinction where um, class, society, inequality, those sorts of things are very important. So if, for example, if you um, if you murdered a, a poor person versus a rich person, it's a different sentence. Mm -hmm. So if you murder a rich person, it's much worse. And you could argue maybe that's still the case, but in a slightly more implicit way. But anyways, going back to the point, uh, these ideas of what is correct or what is right are built on uh, ideas that are not necessarily objective. They are built on beliefs. They're built on first principles, which are not necessarily something that can be proved. Um, so I'd be interested to know, can you illustrate what you mean by, uh, for example, if someone believes in the rights for all, equality, those sorts of things, how, why can't these things be proved? Um, 
I think that um, there's a there's a bit of a history here. So if you go back into the West, um, people that think about thinking philosophers, that's to say, um, they have um, gone on quite a journey with um, something called foundationalism in the West. So foundationalism was the idea that there were a bunch of beliefs that were um, uh, self-evident, perhaps to a well-functioning mind. Mm -hmm. And then uh, once we laid out what those beliefs were, then everything that could be believed could be built on top of them, like a building is built on a foundation. Yep. That's what's called foundationalism. Um, as time went on, um, it became more and more difficult philosophically to, um, to establish things that everybody could agree on, and it became more difficult to work out exactly how to build on those foundations in a way that would be satisfying to everybody and that they would agree with. Mm -hmm. And so um, foundationalism has fallen out of favour. The, um, the last time that foundationalism was um, seriously resurrected was in the early 20th century. There was a group of thinkers called logical positivists. Mm. And what they said um, was that the only things that the only things that you could have confidence in being true <laughs> were things that were proved by mathematics or proved by scientific experiments. Mm. Now, I think a lot of people still believe that. Mm. Uh, it's a very um, common, you might say, progressive view. The trouble is somebody unkindly asked, well, that sentence <laughs> that you just said, you can only believe things proved by maths or experiments, that's not proved by the maths or experiments, and the belief system kind of collapsed. Mm. You can still hold it, but the point is you have to start from there and say that's my fundamental belief even though I can't prove it and mm. I can't even give an account of it on my own methodology. Mm. Um, so a lot of things are like that. Now, I don't think myself that you need to prove many things in life in order for them to work. Mm. So, for example, in, in just about every relationship that's meaningful, um, if you think somebody loves you or you think someone's trustworthy, you will... Um, adopt that stance, that emotional and mental stance, having something far short of legal proof or scientific proof. Mm. And yet, if you go ahead and take that step of trust, it's sometimes vindicated, sometimes not. Yeah. But the point is, I don't think you, I think that putting the standard of proof for everything is, a, um, is an obsession of Western philosophy. And Western philosophy is obsessed with epistemology that what are your grounds of knowing, whereas other mm. philosophies are not. So ancient Greek philosophy, it was interested in epistemology too, but it was also interested in what is a good life, how does one lead a good life. Sure. Um, another example um, is the problem of other minds. I don't know if you've heard of this, but... It sounds familiar, yes, but very vaguely so. Yes, so you and I are having a conversation, and in that conversation you assume that I have a mind that can reason, the, that I'm enough like you that you can understand me, and I assume mm. the same thing. But there's no scientific proof of that. You can't prove consciousness. It's definitely not the same as um, brain waves on a, mm. on a scan. Um, and indeed, um, as a Christian, I, I notice Alvin Plantinga has a similar argument for the existence of God, which he says God, like another mind, is some, someone that you assume and that you can relate mm. to, and you don't have to approve it to relate to him. So mm. um, I think there are a number of things um, that we just assume in life and they work. Mm. Consciousness being one, moral facts being another. Most people believe in moral facts. They believe that there are things that are true independent of time and culture. Mm. 
And these are things that um, are quite hard to come up with an account of proof for. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the idea of having uh, of having some sort of fundamental belief, but then it reaching a point where you can't really prove the validity of that. Uh, I was uh, perhaps uh, tangentially re related was. I was I was thinking the other day this I, this notion that I think a lot of my generation's uh, interested in, which is uh, I want to have an impact on the world. Mm. And I was trying to think, okay, I I feel that's true for me as well. Mm. But why do I want to have an impact on the world? Mm -hmm. And the logic is quite circular. So I want to have an impact on the world because I want to do good. Why do I want to do good? Because I want to have an impact on the world. But the fundamental belief, I don't know what, where it is ex exactly located or what it's, it's supported by, rather than its own, it by, by itself. Mm. Um, and so, in a sense, I, I sort of relate it to what you were just saying about, you know, there's only a certain point where you, uh, your fundamental beliefs can go up to and then you can't really prove them. Mm. Um, I would certainly affirm that belief um, that... Um, um, the best of being human, one can be human in a bad way too, but mm. the best of being human is to want to have an impact on the world. Um, I'd, I'd add a footnote here, which may be controversial, but I, I think that if I reach the stage where I consider that my good impact on the world, such as it is, consists in following the right causes internationally, mm. but I don't really care about the people or the situation that that I'm living and I'm mm. placed in, then I think something's gone a bit wrong. Yeah. So yeah. I think um, I think um, I, I wish that you say it's your generation, maybe it's every generation. I wish we we could all recover the idea of an ordinary life well lived. Mm. Um, it seems to me that that idea is not highly valued now, and I think that's a shame. Mm. I think um, loving and caring for the people in your immediate environment, your, your placed in a certain time and place mm. um, and um, supporting causes that are important internationally are a picture of a, a flourishing human life. Yeah, when you said that, I immediately thought of the, I don't know if you watch Footloose? Um, the movie? Yeah, the movie. Yeah. The, there's a, basically, if, if anyone hasn't watched it, the premise is, is that it's a, it's a, a, a small town. This boy moves from big city to a small town. I think it's Kev Kevin Bacon, like when he was like eighteen or whatever. Um, and it's quite a, a quite a, a a Christian community that views dancing as as being a sin. Oh yes. And he uh, he comes and he tries to make the case for why dancing isn't a sin yeah. and it should be embraced. But um, they're these really uh, really beautiful scenes of because it's a small town and it's very uh, focused around Christianity, community, religion, it's very beautiful, uh, I think, conception of what life could be, which is you are, uh, you are there to uh, help your community flourish and being there for one another. Yeah. Whereas when I watched that, I thought that was, it directly contrasted my life at the moment, maybe um, the life of my friends as well, where mm. it's a very individual focused. Mm. Um, and I've grown up in India, so I've come from a place where community is seen as a central value as opposed to individualism. Mm. And that, to me, uh, I thought was quite an interesting contrast. Mm. Um, mm. But I suppose this is an interesting point. So we've sort of covered, you know, the idea of first principles, fundamentalism, mm. and then how you can't, you're, you can't really prove your fundamentals up to a certain point. 
But why is it wrong to have fundamental beliefs? So, you know, Western fundamentalism, we believe in those three ideas that you said. What is the problem with having fundamentalism, if there is in fact a problem? And what are your thoughts on having those? Well, fundamentalism as I define it, and I admit that I've defined it in the book slightly differently to how mm -hmm. other people have defined it. So just in fairness, I would say that um, if you look up the dictionary, it'll, mm. it'll refer to um, having a literalistic reading of particular religious texts and so on. Mm. So I've used the term slightly differently. I, I've used it that way because I want to um, make the point, and this is what I want to say to you now, actually, that um, fundamentalism isn't just an option. It's the only game in town. Um, since the demise of logical positivism, there is no foundationalist project that really works. And so everybody is in the position of um, basing their life to some extent on things that they can't prove. Mm -hmm. So um, I used the example of myself as a Christian earlier when I was talking about um, relating to God, but I, I recognise that atheists um, can have a fundamental belief that there is no God and interpret everything through that, that grid. Mm -hmm. um, so fundamentalism of some kind is unavoidable. Does that mean that literally anything goes? No, it doesn't. You can test your beliefs. Mm. You can talk to people about them. You can present evidence for them. But all that falls short of proof in so many things. Mm -hmm. There's really only a very um, small number of things that you can prove um, beyond doubt. I think the English philosopher Isaiah Berlin sort of spelt them out as largely mathematical things. Mm. Um, there's very few things outside of that. So is there a problem with it in general? No, it's... Uh, it's necessary. Mm. It's really an illustration in the era of knowledge, what we know is true in life, which is a certain amount of trust is necessary to live. Mm. You have to trust people beyond your beliefs, beyond the, the proofs that you have of their trustworthiness. You just have to. Mm. You start with your parents, whether or not they're good parents, you, you, you at least initially have some kind of trust in them. Mm. Um, and um, so it's, it's unavoidable. And so in the era of knowledge of epistemology, you could put the same thing as saying you have to start somewhere. Mm. Um, what, what do I think is wrong with Western fundamentalism? So in my book, I talk about Western fundamentalism as being uncritical celebration of democracy, free market liberalism, or, or sometimes people call that economic rationalism in Australia. Mm -hmm. It's basically market economics and sexual freedom. Um, incidentally, the way I came up with those three was I was debating at the Oxford Union mm. Which and is I, the, the, Ox, the, uh, the debating society, society of the Oxford, That's right. Oxford University, right? And I became a bit dissatisfied with the debates. They were very superficial. And so I went and spoke to one of the leaders and he mm -hmm. said, Gordon, everybody who comes here believes uncritically in democracy, free market liberalism and sexual freedom. Mm -hmm. And so you just can't question those things. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's um, as rigid perhaps as some people talk about religious fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. So what do I think, what do I think of that... Uh, that threesome, well, I think they're all related in an important way to freedom. Mm. So democracy is freedom from dictators. Free market liberalism is freedom to enter into commercial arrangements that we consider to be mutually advantageous with people. Mm -hmm. And sexual freedom is about being able to have sex with anybody regardless of any pre-existing commitments or anything as long as it's consensual and adult. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I think about those is that I would make a distinction between freedom from and freedom for. Mm -hmm. So um, freedom from is when people are released from things that hold them back and they gain agency. Mm -hmm. But then what they do with that agency 
is freedom for. So um, if you fix up a machine that's broken down, mm. you remove something that's stuck in the middle of it that stops it, stops it working, that's freedom mm. from. Yeah. But then you can use it for the purpose for which it was intended. That's the freedom for. Mm. Now, I think in the West today, our idea of freedom is just simply to remove every possible constraint you can imagine. Mm. And then it's assumed that the freedom for will be good because I believe Westerners are naive about evil. Mm. We believe that as long as we take off all restraints, good will inevitably follow. Mm. So not all uh, worldviews are like that. Um, Christianity is quite different. It says that, um, for example, it says that the greatest cause of unfreedom is sin. And so Jesus comes to free us from sin. But then there's a freedom for, which is adoption to God's family, which has a, mm. it's a form of human flourishing. Yeah. Now, I don't think there really is a well-articulated vision of freedom for in the West today. Mm. I think the idea is get rid of the constraints and everybody does whatever they want. Yeah. And good will inevitably happen. Yeah. And I suppose how I see this is that uh, uh, freedom for without some sort of coherent narrative, some sort of co coherent story just leads to some, uh, just leads to, uh, uh, I suppose, a society whereby there's not much direction. And so you can go in any direction, but mm. not all directions are good directions. That's how yeah. I sort of view what you're saying. So um, to be a bit more controversial, I, I think that. Um, out of those three areas I mentioned, democracy, free market liberalism, and sexual freedom, mm. I believe that the direction that Westerners tend to go, at least for two of them, for the economy and sex, is the kind of um, direction that Friedrich Nietzsche charted. He was a German philosopher who felt that strength, beauty, skill was really what set apart some people from the rest, who he called mm. mobs and slaves. Mm. So he was an extreme yeah. elitist. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, a completely free sexual and economic society rewards those who are marketable, who mm. have things to offer, and um, leaves the mobs and slaves to the side. Mm. Democracy isn't quite like that. Um, and I think that's because Nietzsche was implicated, perhaps unfairly, with the Nazis in World War II. Mm. And so in democracy, we're very cautious about this idea that the powerful and beautiful and strong have the right to marginalise others who are not like that. We're very yes. against that politically. Mm. But in these other areas, I don't think we are. Yeah, right, right. And uh, what, what, I, what I thought was most interesting from your book is the implications, uh, the freedom from uh, that we sort of uh, are released from, so to speak, uh, in, in this from the sexual uh, uh, liberation movement from the 60s onwards mm. is that the consequence, although there are positives which you put forth, which are, for example, freedom to choose partners, whoever they may be, uh, so on and so forth, the consequence may be uh, that uh, there's a sort of a new sort of inequality which is brought out whereby the selection between partners isn't as distrib well distributed uh, amongst various other arguments, but I'm sure we can dive into that perhaps mm. later on. But sure. but is that would you say that's sort of a, a good summary of your view? Or I mean, the way the way I'd put it is that um, the sexual revolution, by which I mean increased tolerance and celebration of sex outside of um, traditional marriage, mm. the sexual revolution uh, is normally viewed of as a left wing um, struggle for liberation. Mm. And to some extent, I agree with that, and to some extent, I don't. 
But there's another side to it, which is it's an applying of the principles of free market liberalism and market economics to human relationships. Mm. So I think it's become, it's it's um, what sometimes people call neoliberalism. Mm. I think a lot of the sexual revolution is just neoliberalism applied to relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you go to a shop to buy something, the only thing that matters is that you've got the money and that, that you consent to trade. Mm. That's the only thing that matters. Um, and sadly, I've seen the debate about sexual ethics shrink purely to questions of consent. Mm. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think all sex should be consensual, even sex that, as a Christian, I regard as immoral. Mm. I think it's better that it's consensual than not. Yes, of course. Um, but to have everything reduced to that question, is it consensual, just sounds so much like a market to me. Mm. The only thing that matters is that the parties who are trading... Yeah, as long as you've got the money, it's fine. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. sort of a, a reductionist right. view. Um, there's a... There's a um, I can give you an illustration by um, thinking of, of your computer. Mm. Um, your computer is alienable. That's a legal word, which means that you have the right to give it to me. If we strike a mutually advantageous bargain, I give you a certain amount of money, mm. you can release your computer and give it to me. Mm. Um, but if you had children, um, they wouldn't be alienable to you. There's no sense in which you could transfer your children to me. Mm. They have a relational right to your proximity and... Um, that they they uh, they have feelings, they're people, and so on. Um, I think what the sexual revolution has done is taken um, sexual partners from the category of people who have a right to relational proximity mm. to things where you can just get rid of them when it no longer is maximising of your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. There's an interesting. Oh, there's a few studies actually. One of them is yours, which uh, you did with a, a few colleagues at, at Oxford University with the coin flipping game. Uh, to do with the finance industry. And oh, I reported that. I didn't do that study. Oh, I reported. So, that's yeah, right. Well, yeah. I think that was a fascinating study. But another study, which is sort of tangential, um, is uh, I read it in a book by Yanis Varoufakis, who's a, mm. one of the Greek, uh, uh, former Greek. He used to actually be the um, lecturer in economics at Sydney University. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But he talks about how... Um, he compares blood donations in countries mm. and he looks at the incentives driving the donations. So mm. there are countries that have financial donations and the countries that aren't. Mm. And he, I, he, he says a very uh, sort of on a whim that countries that have financial donations actually have less people giving blood compared mm. to countries that do. Interesting. And his rationale is, is that uh, the economic, the economic uh, exchange what that does is it, it switches the the way in which people value yes. the donation to yes. uh, from a more moral frame to a, a benefit frame. What is this yeah. actually give, giving to me as opposed to what am I giving to other people? Yes. And I think you in your book you mention uh, another another one about uh, picking up preschool kids. Yeah, that's right. That's, so if you want me to say something about that, yeah. there was a famous study where um, in Israel where a creche was having trouble with parents arriving late to pick up their kids. Mm. So they must have had an economist on staff. They said, put on a fine, and therefore the people will think twice before coming late because they mm. have to pay a fine. What they found when they put on the fine was that the number of parents arriving late actually increased. <laughs> yeah. And the reason yeah. they said was that it's just what you said a moment ago exactly, they said that before the fine was in place, mm. it was viewed in a moral frame, but as soon as there was money involved, it became subject to a cost-benefit analysis. Mm. I can keep I can keep working for an extra hour. That will cost me 
this amount of money as a fine at the preschool. Mm. Is it worth it? Well, what's my hourly rate? What's the fine? Yeah. Whereas when it was in a moral frame, there was a different calculus going on. Mm. There was a different calculation going on. Yeah, and it's so subtle that even the implications societally, I wonder what they are. So, for example, yeah. it, what you posit in terms of economic freedom from free market liberalism, I think there's all sorts of uh, implications from an ecological perspective. So, for example, mm. uh, being in climate, I think there's a really famous quote, it's easier to see the demise of the planet than of capitalism, um, which is quite a, quite a flagrant um, view, but whereby um, any sort of uh, connection with the planet and trying to w live within its uh, biophysical boundaries are... Mm. are uh, they seem so so hard to imagine because uh, we're in a sort of a cost benefit lens. Yeah, uh, yeah, and because and because free market liberalism solves the problem of values in society. So people believe all sorts of different things about a range of topics, mm -hmm. and they value things differently. Now, what a market will do is it will deliver you prices, a set of prices mm -hmm. for various things. And in a rough and ready way, we can all take them as, as kind of the basis for valuations. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that for certain limited tasks. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to decide, for example, whether to build a bridge or not build a bridge, and um, it's not in an area that's environmentally in danger or anything like that, it's just in the middle of Sydney, it seems to me perfectly okay to do a cost-benefit analysis because... Mm -hmm. The question of the bridge seems to me to be more or less separable from a whole range of other things. Mm. But what you're alluding to there, Xavier, which I think is very interesting, is that when an economic mindset overtakes everything and it becomes, it starts to permeate mm. everything, mm. then there's a question about whether you, you are able to retain any other values at all. Yeah, and I suppose that, that game that you reported, that study you reported on mm. about the coin flipping mm. is a, perhaps a, I'm, temp I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say a, uh, a snapshot into what is currently occurring, which is, and, and I invite you to tell that, tell what that study does, but. Sure, uh, yeah. sure. So there was a, um, it's a very clever study. I really like it. So, so people play a game where you flip a coin and you're told what the correct answer is. So in this flip, it'll be a head, this flip will be a head, this next one will be a tail. So you just flip it and compare what you're supposed to get with what you get. And if there's a match, you take, I think it was 10 euros. It was, mm. I think it was done in Europe. And, um, and then at the end of it, you add up the number of correct tosses you get and you get the money. Well, the ingenious thing about the experiment is that the people go away and do it in private, away from the view of the experiment. So you can cheat. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. can pretend that the coin flip you got was the same as one. Right. <laughs> yeah. And what they did was that they um, looked at different professions doing this, and then they looked at bankers doing it, and, and they split the bankers into two groups. One group, they talked about their ordinary life. They talked about their hobbies, their families, mm. and so on, when they did the coin task. And the next group, they, they got them to talk about their banking work and all, all yeah. the things they've done, the deals they've cut and so on. Now, the clever thing about the experiment is that even though you can't tell individual cheating, when you get back and compare the distribution of heads and tails that people claim they have with, with what you should see according to probability, you can tell if there's been cheating. Yeah, using statistics to you can use who, statistics. who are cheating who isn't. That's yeah, right, that's yeah. right. You can tell for a group. And they found that the, when the bankers were talking about their work lives and mm. 
uh, things to do with banking. They actually cheated more often than others. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Um, I guess that tells you that um, there's certain modes of thinking which can just lead you to being dishonest, even though it, it's not obvious that they ought to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I suppose we can use this to sort of dive back into fundamentalism. Mm. Um, there, there was a part in your book where you talk about how uh, religious fundamentalists or people that are considered religious funda- fundamentalists, so for example, a woman wearing a burqa in a Western mm. society, people mm. may, I think you told the story of a, a woman going to like a spa or like a pool. Um, yeah, pool in Oxford, yeah. And she was, people were basically making remarks about, you know, yeah. the, the fact that she was a Muslim and that she was yeah. wearing a burqa. And you, a burkini. A burkini, that's yes. right. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Um, and uh, basically that Westerners were having sort of an unthinking response immediately saying, well, you know, she's just a fundamentalist and she doesn't really critically examine her beliefs yeah. without actually having any knowledge of that yeah. or knowing how introspective a person is. Um, what is your view of this idea of unthinking responses and how can that help people who are uh, sort of looking at their first principles, their beliefs and their fundamentals? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess that... Um, um, hmm. uh, I suppose it's always helpful to to de- decode yourself from uh, unthinking responses there's a few things you can do you can you can actually get to know somebody who's different to you that's the best way because mm-hmm. if you connect with them on any level you suddenly you, they, you value them in a way that, that you don't when they're just sort of a stereotype or something mm. sometimes it's not possible to do that so reading is a good alternative mm. you, know, you, read, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you read about someone's life you can yeah. develop a connection or sympathy with them. I don't mean by the way that once you develop that connection you can't disagree with them but um tolerance of people is a virtue but tolerance of ideas doesn't have to be yeah that's right Um, so but i think tolerance of people is a virtue and that's Mm. to say give people enough space to explain themselves so that you can you can represent their position in a way a that they would say is a fair description they can Mm. recognize themselves in the description you give um and um and B, that it's it's generous. You you try hard to see it from their point of view. In the end, as I describe in the book, you, you walk away from your own beliefs and look over your shoulder at where you are long enough mm. to sort of imagine um, how you could think differently. But then you go back to your beliefs. You, mm. you have to. No one can live without fundamentals. So I think um, uh, knowing people, reading, and... Um, uh, I'm sorry if this sounds like a shot at, uh, <laughs> at another generation, but I think that um, if you spend as much time reading as you do on social media, it will bound to be bound to improve you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I'm, I'm, I run the risk of now getting a mass unfollowing on my um, on my uh, subscribe now. But um, well, I, I this era suits me because I I think some things can be communicated very briefly and nutshelled, <clears> and I actually like doing that. Yeah. So this era of brief communication and short um, yes. attention span yeah, the, media suits me in a way, but some things can't be communicated in a short attention span. Yeah, most definitely. Um, though I, 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 I've picked up reading as a hobby for the past few years and I've been sort of observing the reading patterns and I think it definitely is the case that reading as a hobby is pretty mm. much not, not plummeted, but has definitely been decreasing. Right. Um, which is interesting. But uh, I suppose, to be fair, you'd have to, because um, people do learn things from um, from seeing people like seeing us now, mm. and there is something special about conversation. So 
if one were really to do a proper study, but you'd have to offset that with what you learn from seeing people talk. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I, just touching on uh, what you were mentioning, it, it made me think of a conversation I had with someone a while ago, and we were having a, a sort of more, more of a heated debate, but I was making the point that it's important to be friends with people that you actually disagree with quite mm -hmm. on a fundamental basis. So mm -hmm. I have a few friends that are... Uh, what you would call liberal voters or more right-leaning voters here in Australia. And I wouldn't necessarily... I think I would probably say I'm more left-leaning, but uh, it's sort of to be discussed. I'm sort of always changing. But um, I, I was talking to this friend saying, you know, I think it's really important that you have friends that you disagree with. Mm. And the main, uh, the, the main uh, uh, argument that she levied at me is that, well, th the problem is, is that people that have beliefs that are so different to you uh, or sorry arguments that are, that are that come from a certain fundamental place um, you can't be friends with them because it means that their values are just diametrically opposed to yours and you can't be friends with them uh, so my 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 takeaway from the argument and sort of thinking about it is that one people can come up with fallacious arguments all the time and that doesn't really reflect what they truly believe mm -hmm. and to people are susceptible to to cognitive bias and so they could hold a, a specific position not necessarily because they are a strident republican liberal voter or even greens left voter but just because they identify with it strongly because of per their personality mm. so more of like a psychological lens mm. but i'm curious to see what your views are in terms of critical thinking and being and having conversations with people you disagree with and this is especially relevant because now uh, uh, with uh, uh, social media platforms sort of si uh, siloing people using al mm. algorithms mm. people uh, in my view are less engaged with the yeah. opposite opposite uh, politically or moral uh, person yeah. viewpoint yeah it isn't easy to um, to uh, be friends with people that you have strong disagreements with and I suppose um, um, I suppose there, there are limits to that. Um, it depends on the nature of the friendship, I suppose. When you're working with people or you're married to someone or you're mm. making decisions with someone um, where those conflicting values come into play, well, that can be very difficult. Mm. I don't think um, myself there's much of a barrier, and in fact that's what universities should be the best at. Universities should mm. be shining examples of places where people can... Um, interact, they're not making decisions together usually, they're just interacting as, as people um, in the marketplace of ideas and we ought to be modelling um, a place where people can actually um, have quite different views mm. and listen to each other. Mm. Um, unfortunately that's not always the case of, the, of what a university uh, actually is but um, I think that would be a, a worthy ideal. On the question of um, a psychological lens I myself think it's important to um, ask people, we talked about positive conversations virtues before, I think it's okay to ask someone, why do you think the way that you do? Mm. And, and even if the answer is because of a particular experience or an upbringing that I have, mm. I think it's important to not then dismiss them on the basis of that because it's true that you can... Um, have a particular perspective because of an experience you've had. But sometimes 
you've had a particular experience and everyone might expect it to point in, in the direction, but it doesn't. Mm, yeah, yeah. And other times it might predispose you to think a certain way, but you actually do the work of self-reflection of talking to other people and you end up confirming the position you already have, but it's, mm. it's not just because you had a particular experience. Yeah, I, I bring up the psychological lens because when I was about 18, 19, um, I came across, so in, in the YouTube, YouTube world, there's, um, there's this thing in psychology called, uh, it's going to escape me now. It's called, uh, I think, psycho, uh, confirmation psycho bias? not confirmation bias, but it's called like psychological drift, something along these lines, which is essentially where algorithms are so powerful at identifying what you watch that once you watch a particular video, let's say you're watching, um, I don't know, some sort of, some sort of political uh, uh, commentator, uh, the the uh, YouTube algorithm will be able to identify the type of video it is and then suggest a video which is slightly a bit more uh, controversial, but mm. ever, very subtly controversial, mm. or maybe mm. a bit more controversial. But it's done so in a way that it, it you're receptive to the suggestion. Mm. Mm. And so you'll click the video, mm. and what will eventually happen is your uh, views will start to become ever more radical mm. to where you become a sort of radical fundamentalist, an sort ideologue, of an ideologue yeah. where any opposition to your views, you just sort of label yeah. that person as, you know, yeah, right. you know these, these left-wing leanies or yeah, these right-wing yeah, yeah. hacks, whatever. Um, and yeah, so there was like a period of time where I, I was having debates with people whilst I was experiencing this sort of psychological drift. Um, and it felt as if I was sort of kidding myself, but because I was watching so many videos and mm. sort of ingesting the viewpoints of whoever mm. was speaking, mm. I could sort of talk around the person mm. and not have a very good, a very compelling argument levied against me. Mm. And it was only until I, I, well, at that time I actually started reading. And then through reading, I sort of untangled the views mm. I had and sort of realized I was actually locked in. Mm. Like my identity, identity was so tied with the idea that um, I, I was able to sort of distance myself from it. And so now I'm, I, I am very cognizant of confirmation bias and mm. trying to be very careful of mm. any time I feel attracted to an idea of really taking a step to say, okay, do I like this idea because it confirms what I'm thinking or do mm. I like the idea because of its merit? Mm. Um, and so I suppose this isn't really a question, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts and perhaps what we can do to promote critical thinking. Yeah, it's a very hard question because ultimately um, um, we, we um, think as we interact with other people and, um, and the quality of the information we receive is likely to impact the quality of our thinking. Um, I suppose it comes down to um, looking for credible sources of information mm. and so how well credentialed someone is, um, how... Um, you know, whether there's an obvious bias, although mm. I said that people can um, be led to a thing, a position by a life experience, but then think about it and still have that position. Obviously, there are people who are um, led to that, led to a position and don't do the work of thinking about it critically. And then there are people who pronounce certain opinions for self-interested reasons to sell mm. things or to promote political causes for which mm. they're, they're paid or something. So there's a great deal of... Um, um, material around in life that you can doubt. I mm. think it's just 
it's hard to it's hard to generalize about it um, except to say that um, yeah you you watch your sources and you you become aware of what good and bad arguments are mm-hmm. and one basic thing that um, um, academia trains you to do is to try and separate people from arguments mm. that's a good discipline mm. at do the you- end of the analysis you sometimes do have to conclude that they're connected yes um, the interest of a person argument but um, I think it's a good discipline to not rush in with that assumption yeah could could you elaborate on that because I I, I think in that conversation I was mentioning that debate mm. I had with that person that was also an argument that they levied at me saying mm. well you can't you can't uh, you can't decouple the person from the ideas that they're espousing which yes it, it's it's a sort of um, um, a legacy of what people call critical thinking, not in the sense that you mean it, but, um, sorry, critical theory, not critical thinking. Yeah. The idea that um, ideas are simply grabs at power and that um, whenever anybody says anything, they don't really care about the truth. They just care about bolstering mm. some kind of position. Sure. Now, unfortunately, that's true sometimes, mm. but to, um, to espouse it all the time without exception just means that the possibility of any thought just dissolves. Mm. You start to think that whenever anybody says something, they're simply trying to seize power over you. And mm. um, so, um, I guess my own practice is that um, I'm aware that that can happen, and I sometimes reluctantly come to the conclusion that that's mm. what someone's doing. But I certainly don't make that my first assumption. Mm. I think I think the the ethics of listening to people involve assuming that they what they say makes sense and trying to understand them. And assuming that it's said in good faith until you have a good reason not to. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a. I think that's a good way to sort of transition into our next topic about mm. economics, democracy, mm. and we can eventually tackle the the tricky problem of sexual freedom as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's a economist called Vaclav Smith. I don't know if you've come across him. No. Um, he he focuses on environmental stuff as well as mm-hmm. energy and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and he stated that uh, economists maintain a monopoly on supplying the physically impossible narratives of continuing growth that guide decisions made by national governments and companies. So, uh, widely critical lens on how economies and governments and corporations function. From a government point of view, and as an economist, you worked at the Reserve Bank, mm. which is our, mm. which is our uh, Reserve Bank in Australia, mm. for how many years? Was it twenty eight years? No, I worked there from um, eighty six to um, two thousand and three. Yeah, mm. so quite a significant time. So mm. I think your experience here, not only as a, as an academic, but a, a practitioner in yeah. the economic world, would be mm. valuable. Do you think policymakers have a view whereby economics, particularly uh, neoliberal economics takes primacy over issues such as moral goodness and being a person of virtue? Well, I'll, what I would say from my experience in the policy world is that economists generally believe that what they're doing is separable for, from those things. So mm. they don't believe that it either helps or hinders those things. Mm. And sometimes I think that's true. Mm. So I think in the example I gave before, if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis about whether to build a bridge... And nothing much morally hangs on it. It's not in a, it's not a, you don't have to bulldoze a whole slum of poor people or you Mm. don't have to wreck an environment. If there's no moral issue that hangs on it, then doing a cost-benefit analysis, weighing up the pros and cons, seems to me to be perfectly okay. Mm. Um, 
Where it gets trickier is that um, in, in a society like ours, where there's a great deal of disagreement about values, I think economics tends to fill a, a vacuum mm. of values. And so um, there's a bunch of things about the discipline of economics which um, create a kind of society. And how important these things all are is, I'll, I'll leave it for your readers to reflect, uh, listeners to reflect as they, as they sort mm. of think about themselves. Now, I knew you were going to ask this, so I do have a number of <laughs> uh, thing, a few list things here. Um, so the first thing is that um, economists tend to use market prices. Mm. Now, market prices sometimes are misleading. They don't factor in things like pollution. So that's something an environmental economists have complained mm -hmm. about for many years. Um, the next thing is that, uh, as we talked about before with those examples of the, the crash or, uh, or the banking sector, what economics sometimes does when it spreads throughout society is it replaces um, other forms of ethics with, with raw consequentialism. Mm -hmm. What In this situation, what's the pluses and minuses? And it also creates a very individualistic mindset. So it tends yep. to be, what's the costs and benefits for me? Mm. And, and to the extent that it does that, it helps create a kind of environment where, where um, people are basically fairly selfish. Mm. Um, then to, to say the argument against that is that um, economists would say that um, what the economic system that we, does, that we have does is it actually enables tolerably good social outcomes or sometimes good social outcomes when everybody's selfish. Mm. And so that's not a weakness, it's a strength. Because mm. everybody is selfish. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other thing that it does is it gives you a certain vision of life. And economics is not alone this way. But the vision of life goes that you can't be worse off by having more choices. Mm. So if you can expand your choice set on every dimension, that's a good thing. So, so the sort of utopia that an economist would imagine if they took their models literally would be one where there's no constraints on your freedom at all. You can do anything mm. you want. You'd be like God, really. You'd have uh, complete freedom of action in any dimension at all. Mm. So there's there's the idea of limits being mm. good for you or good for society mm. is just not there. It's a right. it's, it's 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 limiting. It, it's a bad thing. Mm. The idea that limits are there is is actually a, a bad thing in the yeah. way of thinking. And now, how important these are for, um, as it were, corrupting society, I think it just depends on the issue. So mm. one thing I do feel is that um, the governments that were in power when I was at the Reserve Bank, the Hawke and Keating government, basically, which was a left-wing government, and it had this idea of making the economy more efficient, which they succeeded in doing, and therefore having a bigger pie to have sort of social welfare programs. Mm. So they were left-wing left-wing hearts and right-wing pragmatics, yeah. right-wing policies. And I think, despite their good intentions, they actually change the way people think mm. by embracing market economics in every area of society. And yeah. that's, a, that's a great irony and a sad irony. Mm. Um, so, so to go back to your original question, I think there are some things where just doing standard economics is pretty separable from the rest impacts on the rest of society. But I do think that economic thinking um, reinforces a kind of individualistic, um, all limits are bad kind of thinking, which goes back to your question about growth, really. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm 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 very fascinated by this idea that uh, more options are better. Mm. And I suppose taking a more philosophical, even a theological lens, I wonder what you think of that as a as a Christian, because when you have a, a a value set such as Christianity, it is fundamentally about putting limits on certain things and giving yeah. freedoms to others. Yeah. Whereas in a free market, liberalism is about giving you the choice to do everything, and That's so. Right. And so if you have limits to do everything, uh, all sorts of policy implications can happen. So, you know, privatization of banks. Uh, so I think Keating was responsible for privatizing the CBA, CBA mm. Commonwealth Bank of Australia, um, you know, making utilities, private companies, those sorts of things. Yeah, that's a slightly different issue. Uh, not unrelated, but um, privatization is more about the scope of government versus the scope of private enterprise. Sure. And so um, this is very interesting. I was having a conversation with um, uh, Jonathan Collin, the streamer, um, about this. It is, it is a fact that people who are in favour of market economics are often in favour of small government. Mm. Um, now, those two things don't have to go together. Mm. You can have a very large, expansive government that still use markets a lot, and the Chinese government. It's mm. a brilliant example of that. Very involved in the economy, but they've used markets extensively. Yeah. So it doesn't logically follow they have to be together. But you're right, in the West they are together. Mm. And so privatisation is, is more about um, this sort of distrust of government. Yeah, sure. When you're talking about um, uh, what you learn from being friends with people who don't agree with you, it made mm. me think of a, a dear friend of mine in the United States who has helped me understand this kind of small government perspective. So mm. just like that movie that you referred to, uh, Footloose, was it? Yeah, Footloose. Yeah, yeah. Just like that movie, her view is that most of the good that happens in life happens in the local community as people have relationships with each other. Yeah. And so she wants to keep interference of government and everything as far away as mm. possible. Mm. Now, my view about that is that um, I think it just depends on the, on the issue. Sure, yeah. And so I, I don't... I think it's actually good that a centralised government provides things like healthcare and education or makes them available for underprivileged areas. Yeah. I think during a COVID pandemic, <laughs> centralised decision-making yeah. just makes sense. So for me, it's case yeah. by case. Yeah. But uh, I did learn from her the best sort of argument for, for, for valuing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but going back to what you said about limits, yes, I think that um, if you ask me what I think about it as a Christian, I'd say that God has placed us in a particular time, in a particular place, with a reasonable sphere of action. Mm. And life becomes unmanageable if you want to control all the future, control all international politics, mm. um, want to have unlimited freedom in everything you do. Mm. I don't regard that as a kind of freedom. I regard that as a anxiety-provoking um, dilemma. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is maybe a strange analogy, but uh, uh, in... Comparing your uh, analysis from freedom from freedom for, mm. uh, there's a uh, with technology uh, expanding in its efficiency and its productivity. Mm. Um, there was a book that I read recently about sort of focus, um, mm. and they uh, one of the author was interviewing uh, uh, was interviewing experts that have basically created the uh, social media uh, and web developers' capacity to operate in such a huge. Uh, and efficient scale, and they interviewed the person who invented the infinite scroll. 
So previously when you were scrolling, mm. it buffered for a moment. Yeah. And then you were able to scroll. So there was a sort of a, a, feed, a, a feedback and slowdown. Yeah, okay. And this person had uh, invented a infinite scroll. So basically, you could continuously scroll yeah. as long as you have you know, a reasonable internet connection. But he was saying that that was his biggest regret he's ever done. Because essentially, what's happened is people's focus has now been essentially obliterated. And one of the biggest reasons is because infinite scroll, you can continuously scroll. And uh, you can be, and it it works in terms of metrics, in terms of attention mm. to the screen. Mm. You you are much more likely to spend many more minutes, or even hours per week, on the screen if there's infinite scroll. Mm. And so basically, it's sort of a strange connection. But this idea of just an improvement, or, or I would sh shouldn't say an improvement, an expansion of possibilities. It, possibilities isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah, that's right. I I um so. Let me explain why I take a low dose of antidepressant medication, but I don't take LSD. Sure. I have a picture, <laughs> yeah, okay. I have a picture of human flourishing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very happy for medical interventions or technology to take me up to that. And mm -hmm. as it happens, I have a little bit of trouble sleeping, and a low dose of antidepressants just helps me sleep, mm. which helps me function. But I don't take LSD because it's not part of my um, um, conception of human flourishing to become disconnected with what I consider to be the real world mm. and be off into uh, into other worlds. Mm. So um, without, so one of the things being a Christian does is it gives me a picture of human flourishing to which I'm happy to use technology to get up to, mm. um, but jumping beyond somewhere else is not uh, mm. an interest to me. Right. There's a certain point whereby uh, the determination of going beyond this is perhaps... I, I risk using this word, and I don't mean to any offence. Maybe it's un, uh, unnatural to take a certain, to get to a certain area and then go beyond that. That's very interesting. So, so um, even though I hate, I don't like the word natural because I feel like it's used and abused for and against arguments, uh, like for example, naturalistic fallacies, those sorts of things. Anyways, but yeah, that's, no, I like the word, and I think that the loss of the term natural is exactly what we're talking about because mm. if you have no conception of what flourishing human life looks like mm. then um, um, you're really um, you're waiting to be carried away by any transhumanist vision that anyone comes up with mm. yeah and the, um, yeah now I, I think that it um, this is a very interesting discussion I think that there are certain things not only do I have a picture of human flourishing, but I have a picture of areas where it really doesn't matter if you experiment with new things. So abseiling is not natural. Flying <laughs> is not natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sense that it's not... Um, yeah. It's, sorry, flying and abseiling are technological advances which enable us to do things which we couldn't do before. Yeah. But I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Because my conception of human flourishing has some areas which are off limits and some which aren't. Yes, yes, yes. There's that flexibility. I think there's uh, interesting arguments about um, uh, uh, using CRISPR technology, the gene editing technology, and whether we should actually, whether we ought to uh, mm. intervene in uh, in human, uh, I don't know what you call it, development on yeah. the genetic level. Removing. Can you tell me my? Can I tell you my transhuman fantasy? Yes, yes, go ahead. So my transhuman fantasy. I'm very interested in stereoscopic photography, which is you sure. take a photo of something from two different angles and you merge into a 3D image. Right. Okay. You sure. Look, you look at the two photos. One's one's 
from an angle from this eye, one's from an angle this eye. Oh, I see. You I put see. them in a machine so this eye is forced to look at that photo, this eye, and it fuses into a 3D image. I don't wow. Know. Oh, that's like, so fascinating. Like going yeah. to a 3D movie. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my, um, my dream is to put a um, helmet on <laughs> with eyes pointing in every different direction, and this fused image comes to your, is put on right. a screen in front of your eyes. And then you walk around like that for a month. And, you know, you can see all around you and people poke you oh, and wow. you get to integrate your senses with your sight of vision. And I wonder whether after a month of that, walking around with that hat, you would actually begin to see through, see 180 degrees. Right, 360 right, degrees right, right, yes, yes, yes. So, um, yeah, that's always <laughs> But uh, whether or not I'd ever try that, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think coming back to, coming back to the idea of, uh, of, economics and uh, having certain fundamentals. One fundamental, so you, out of your list of the three, uh, after reading, there's a book called Less is More, mm. which is uh, an introduction to this idea of degrowth, yep. which I've told you about in the past. Mm. Uh, the author's thesis is essentially that economics has, an, has a, let's say using the fish story, the water mm. is growth, mm-hmm. uh, economic growth that is. And his thesis is essentially that up to a point, it's okay, but exponentially, it is disastrous because it means that, uh, it means all sorts of things, meaning lack of respect for biophysical limits. So basically yeah. you can, you know, pollute beyond Extin- the, Extinct. Yeah, essentially. Extinct. And do all sort, come to all sorts of funny conclusions, which you probably wouldn't have if you had a, a critical lens of growth. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, do, do you think this is a, a fundamental view in economics of growth? Um, because, uh, I mean, obviously those list of three uh, in your book, you talk about, you invite readers to sort of think about yeah. others that you may have not come across or may have not thought about. What do you think of growth and economic growth? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it probably is uh, a fundamental belief of a lot of, econ- of economists that growth is good mm. in an uncritical way. I'm glad you put that qualifier or the author you you cited put mm. the qualifier that a certain amount of it is good because, you know, if we're talking about being in dire poverty, mm. um, it, what does economic growth mean? It means having um, the means of a dignified life. So mm. I'm glad you put that qualification in. Um, there's, there's a few tricky things to say here. The first thing is that... Um, when people complain about growth and environmental degradation, um, they're referring to something that um, is true in practice but doesn't have to be true in principle. So, so as you know, um, since the Industrial Revolution, the world has experienced enormous economic mm-hmm. growth, enormous increase in living standards, but it's come at the cost of enormous pollution. Mm. So as a historical fact, uh, growth and pollution and environmental degradation have gone together like that. Mm. But if you look carefully at the definition of what economic growth means, Mm. you see that it's not a necessary connection between environmental degradation and growth. Because um, when we talk about economic growth, we're talking not just about goods, which the creation of which tend to use a lot of resources, we're also talking about services. Sure. And services are not usually nearly as intense in their um, material input as goods yep. are. So that's right. one factor. And the other thing is you can get economic growth just by efficiency gains, just by doing things better. So if you're in an economy where people just have a, 
a kind of dumb technology for doing something and somebody realizes, oh, we could do things differently, you can make the economy grow just by doing things in a more effective way. Mm. So in principle, there doesn't have to be a connection between growth and um, environmental degradation, but historically there has been. Mm. Um, I think the way the economy is sort of set up, that that um, historical correlation is probably still true and will mm. be true perhaps for the foreseeable future. So what do we do about it? Um, well, uh, I think that there are a number of things, uh, I guess two basic things, which are pretty hard to pull off mm. in today's world. <laughs> I'm excited to hear which them. Which would help. One is that economics, I think, is remiss in not making a distinction between needs and wants. Mm. And so, um, uh, and it's understandable why this is the case, because it is actually quite hard to mm. make that distinction in practice, mm. especially when you consider things like um, if you move in a certain social set and you need to relate to people, mm. there is a sense in which you need to be invo involved in the things they're in. So if they play a particular yeah. computer game, sure. maybe you want to play it as well. Yeah. So there's a sense in which needs is a fuzzy word. But we all know that um, the desires that we have for a, a second phone or something like that are not to be compared uh, with, say, someone in Africa for who has no other means of communication and them getting a phone is, mm. is a kind of a need. Because mm. a lot of countries have actually leapfrogged over the need for wire installations and gone straight to mobile phones. Yeah, yeah. So, so in one situation, a material advancement certainly is a need. In another, it seems like it's a bit of a luxury. Mm. So we've totally lost that. And mm. that's a loss to, to this question because if we did have more of a sense of having enough, if there was more gratitude, more contentment with what we have, mm. then that would obviously be bad for consumption, but it would be good for the environment. Mm. Um, and the other thing, too, goes back to a really fundamental issue. Economic growth does lots of things, but one basic thing that it does is it increases the value of your time. So as the economy grows, real wages inevitably rise. Why is that? Because as the economy grows, almost by definition, there's more machinery, institutions, and so on, that make each person more productive. So through time, uh, wage rises. Now the question is, what does that incentivize you to do? Well, if you believe the idea that having more stuff makes you happier, then having a higher wage can tempt you to go out there and use that to get more stuff. Mm. Um, so, so the second change, thinking of needs and wants is one change, but the other change is to see valuable uses of your time which are not commercial. Mm. And that's a hard thing for people to do, I think. I yeah, think it's hard absolutely. for people to, to turn away from the labour market and do something that uh, takes time, mm. is socially valuable, but they don't get paid for it. And they're not using their human capital. If they're highly trained and mm. they could go and earn $100 an hour or something doing, doing a bit more extra work, to turn aside from that and spend time with their family, spend time in an environmental care group, um, spend time looking after a sick relative and so mm. on. These are all very costly and they become more costly the more economic growth progresses because the higher your wage goes. So as an economist would say, this yeah. way, the opportunity cost of your time is just always going up. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that the CEOs don't spend a lot of time with their kids. And, <laughs> and I think a lot don't. <laughs> and uh, perhaps that's a reason. But I think that's a... 
both of those reasons. But it's not just CEO, Xavier. It's, it's ordinary people. Yes, it's, yes. It's the yeah. value of our time, as the value of our time goes up, um, it it doesn't force us. We let it. Do yes. To us. It, we we listen to that and we don't spend time on things we don't Yeah, do. yeah. And if, I'm, I'm smiling because um, it's very applicable to my situation. So maybe to give you a quick anecdote. So in 2021, I was working part-time, attending this university, playing chess, going for runs, going for nice walks, reading a lot, spending time with my girlfriend, um, doing a lot and also spending more time with my family. This year, I've taken up a full-time job. Um, my time at leisure, so playing chess, going for runs, walking, being in the natural world, being with my girlfriend, spending time with family have all decreased significantly. Mm. Uh, my time at work has you know, increased by, I don't even know the amount of hours, but basically whatever the equivalent of moving from part-time to full-time is. Mm. Um, and I think from a pure uh, financial point of view, I should be better off. Mm. because I'm earning more. Mm. But uh, from a welfare perspective, my I, I feel worse off, mm. even though I'm earning roughly about three times the amount I was earning last yeah. year, which is very bizarre to me. Mm. Uh, well, it's not that bizarre, actually. I understand why. But it, from if I was looking at it from a pure financial lens, mm. that seems bizarre. Mm. Oh, sorry, a welfare lens, it seems bizarre. And uh, going back to what you were saying about needs, wants, and then also time spent... Those uh, among the what are called degrowth scholars or post-growth mm. scholars, mm. all of those things are a consequence of the economic model, which are which is capitalism. And I'm 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 very hesitant about taking, uh, of attacking big systems because I think it's, uh, although it's important to be critical, I think it's easy to fall into the idea of systems blame and then a lack of inaction that follows from that, because you're focused on the overall system that individual action isn't focused on as much. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems as though that the capitalist model of uh, prioritizing growth at 2 to 3% for rich countries, maybe 7 8% for developing countries, means that an economy is doubling very often. Maybe in a, if you're doing 2 to 3%, I think it's like 25 years an economy doubles. Mm. And if it's doubling for a hundred, if it's you know, if that's happening for you know a century, it's you know it quadruples the size mm. of the economy, meaning the size of consumption, meaning the materials that are extracted. So, do you think? Uh, so it seems like the philosophical implications uh, 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 from from this economic model are uh, valuing consumer goods and valuing uh, wages. Um, and not much else, like you were mentioning, uh, about taking your time away from those sorts of things. So, do you think it's uh, we have to we have to bring an axe to capitalism to uh, to fix this? It's a very good question. Um, so, let me try and um, yeah, get take, some, take take your time as well. I don't want you to get some first principles here. Um, so, in defence of um, the current paradigm, I'll just say that population grows at a few percent every year. Mm. And so it's not just that we're consuming more, it's that people have employment and um, GDP growth and employment growth are correlated. Mm. Uh, so gross domestic product output of the economy, they are correlated. So 
So, um, um, and yet we also see much higher rises in material output. Um, so it seems to me it ought to be possible to, um, to um, grow enough to cover employment, mm. to employ everybody. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it almost by definition, if you slow growth, you will um, reduce the material standard of living. I think that's true. Mm. So are people prepared to have a um, lower material standard of living? Mm. It's a very good question. Um, in uh, the US, in the last decade, there's been a great uproar about inequality. And, it's, and while I agree with that, uh, you'll find the, the fact, the stylized fact that's upset everybody very interesting. The stylized fact is that um, up until the 1980s in the US, children were expected to earn more than their parents. Mm. But after the 1980s, um, it actually was even money. That you, your child might be mm. richer or poorer than you. Now, concern about inequality aside, it's interesting the presumption there that children should always be better off than their parents. It's a kind of growth presumption. Yeah, right. So, um, so what would it take? I mean, capitalism, capitalism, in my opinion, um, is a system that's pretty good at responding to people's values and wants. So if there were a change in values so that people were prepared to live with less material output, then I, I'm not sure whether capitalism needs to be changed that much or whether it would just adjust to it. Mm. Um, yeah. There's no conspiracy in capitalism. Well, there I'm revealing I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> I don't myself think that there's a conspiracy in yeah. capitalism which says we have to grow at 3%. Mm. If people um, wanted to take more leisure time and were prepared to have a lower standard of living, yes. um, they would. Yeah, so I, so I suppose that the conflict that I see is that um, I think it's a political suicide for, for let's say, a, a prime minister or a president, let's say, for the upcoming American election in 2024. Mm. Or the, both the candidates say, we're going to have 0% growth this year. Yeah. And we're going to redistribute so we can sort of compensate. That doesn't seem like a, a winning political message. And so it seems as though the... I, I take your point that, that maybe there isn't like a conspiracy saying that there must be 2 to 3%, but I think in the realm of politics where these sort of uh, objectives are implemented, yeah. that is where it comes at odds. I agree, and that's one of the things I talk about in my book is mm. about the... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's an advertising moment. <laughs> um, one of the things I talk about in my book is uh, my sympathy for politicians. I think I, I use the term... Um, centrifugal vilification. So centrifuge, centrifuge is something which just pushes yeah. heavier things out to the outskirts. And I think um, in Western society, that's the way we process evil. We, mm. we um, don't take personal, res personal responsibility for wrongdoing, but we push it out to other people. And I think politicians are victims of centrifugal vilification. Yes, yes. So I think what happens is that people want inconsistent things. They want clean environment and ever-rising material standards. Mm. Those things are inconsistent, as you rightly say, Xavier. Mm. But this all just gets filtered up to the politicians who must make decisions mm. and and they just basically have to have a bet whether they'll lose, whether the balance of votes will go for them or against them if they prioritise economic growth over the environment. Mm. 
and and if that's what they think they'll do, they'll do it. Yes. And so then everybody complains to the politicians about you don't care enough about the environment, but the problem was their inconsistent attitudes. Yeah. Which they don't have to make decisions about, but the politicians do. Yeah, and I suppose the, the critiques of capitalism will vary in their, uh, in their severity depending on perhaps the political infrastructure in which they're operating in. So, sure. so in America where maybe... Maybe not America. Maybe in the country. I'll, I'll, I'll just keep it, uh, keep it uh, uh, random. So, uh, uh, an economy or a political system that is less compromised by, let's say, political donations, mm-hmm. will probably have more severe critiques of capitalism because they're less likely to implement policies which yeah. are perhaps good for the environment. Whereas in countries like I don't know, like Norway or mm. Finland or those sorts of countries, or a state government which is. Um uh, drip fed off stamp duty is less likely to um, make make sure that houses can be cheap and affordable. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, yeah, I think the institutions can create incentives that that um, scuttle the political process. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, very quickly on the idea of limits. So there's this uh, economist, which I sent you an article of this, his name's Georgos Kalis. Mm-hmm. He's a Greek economist. And he wrote a really interesting book called Limits, where he basically re-examines economic fundamentals. So mm-hmm. going back to Malthus mm-hmm. and sort of his his idea, Malthus's idea, as, as I understand it, is that population growth is going to be going to mean that we're not going to have enough resources to survive. Mm. And then essentially what he didn't foresee is the is dropping the, birth rate. Yeah. Dropping birth rate and then also the growth in production and yeah. consumption uh, yeah. and services globally. Yeah. Um, but Georgos Carlos's view is that uh, he was wrong not because he didn't see capitalism sort of taking steam and uh, birth rates dropping. He was wrong because uh, essentially his view of humanity to to want to expand their needs uh, uh, is not doesn't, nece- doesn't necessarily follow. So his view is that we need to re-examine what needs and wants are. Mm-hmm. And his view is that we need to radically contract what our notion of needs and wants are okay. and live in a, a different type of society. So uh, an example of what I'm talking about is this idea of eco-villages. I don't know if you've heard of them. No. So it's uh, so they're basically these small uh, uh, areas of land which are occupied by people in really small houses mm. that run on a, in a very communal sort of uh, village whereby they share resources, mm. they share cars, um, they have like a common food eating area. So, so it's it, it it feels as if it's sort of like a I don't know some sort of hippie Tributes, utopia yeah. sort of thing. But uh, but it's uh, the the idea is to basically radically reduce consumption, radically reduce energy use, and live communally. That those are the ideas and the results, as I understand it so far. There's a professor from Uni of Melbourne called Samuel Alexander who's done research or he observes research. Um, and the studies that have come out of these eco-villages is that people's relative satisfaction with life doesn't decrease. The energy and water and food consumption drops like by like an astronomical amount, but like 70%, 80%. And so, he, so uh, Samuel Alexander says, well, 
we can live in communities with radically less and we can be just as happy. So why don't we do that? And so it's this idea of re-examining needs and wants and actually mm -hmm. asking, well, we don't have to live this way. We can live uh, radic uh, reducing our lives to to uh, better the planet and reduce our impact. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that goes back to your comment on uh, examining what needs and wants should yeah. be. What, yeah. what are your views on that? Um, there's a few things that I'd like to to investigate in that scenario. So one um, one thing is that uh, there are benefits to mass production. You can do things a lot more cheaply. Mm. So I'd be interested to know whether these people, um, you know, what sort of jobs they have, mm. whether they are, as it were, office workers who are just living in small yeah. communities, yeah. getting all their needs from outside in, in mass-produced pro mass environments. Yeah, as, as I understand it, just, just to provide you a bit more context, because they live very simple lifestyles, they work maybe one or two days a week. Oh, okay. And in terms of materials, my understanding, and I think they probably would have to go to like grocery mm. stores and stuff. So mm. that's using that, like you mm, said, okay. mass produce. But in terms of building houses and stuff, they use recycled materials okay. to try. So the idea of these eco villages is to be as environmentally friendly as possible. Mm. So that's what's informing these villages. But just yeah, I, I'm, it sounds like there may be some really good um, principles there to try out. Um, the the other thing that I'd like to um, that I'm wary of is um, economic localism. So I'm not saying, I don't know whether this experiment mm. involved that, but some people have an idea that if everything is produced locally, mm. that it will be good for the environment. Mm. Now that's actually not right because um, some international trade or trade between regions is very good for the environment because things are grown in areas where the, where the environment suits them to be yeah. grown. Yeah, so if you try... Comparative advantage. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So um, there's, a, there's a strand of um, um, uh, eco-friendly thinking which tends to like, tends to presume that local f is better than global. Mm. Uh, and this, this was um, a number of years ago, there was something called food miles which were put on um, packets of food. And the uh, idea was yeah. how um, far things had to travel to get to... Mm. And that was a misconceived idea because mm. for the reason I said that if something comes from a region where it's actually very economically efficient and sometimes economic, not always, but sometimes economic efficiency matches mm. environmental sustainability. Mm. So um, so those are things that um, are worth asking. But I think the idea of living simpler and doing it in a community is very valuable because mm. often our expectations are shaped by the people around us. Yeah. And so I think if people are doing these things together, it must help. Mm. So I'm very positive about that suggestion. I think that um, um, I, I just think that there are a number of things that would have to be thought mm. through for a general economic approach to it. Yeah, and I, I suppose this is a, a good area for us to transition to think beyond economics mm -hmm. and beyond democracy and sort of mm -hmm. dive into the more philosophical, perhaps even theological sort of areas of life. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so I have a rather uh, lengthy context for this question, sure. so do bear with me. Um, it's from a book, you know, the, the, the context is from a book called The Tyranny of Merit um, by a professor, Harvard professor Michael Sandel. He studies political philosophy mm. um, and the premise of the book is basically that uh, merit is, a, is a, quite a backhanded uh, philosophical point of view because essentially what it means is that uh, it, uh, if there are winners, there must be losers. And so 
those who deserve their success, the inverse is that those who are uh, not doing so well, they deserve their failure. Mm-hmm. So that's a sort of, uh, that's an encapsulation of the book. But um, in the book, there's this quote, which I want to read from you. But just before that, um, I just wanted to say, so one of the major objectives of economics and politics, as I see it, is to ensure that the common good is being met. Uh, in his book, he goes on to say that in ancient China, Confucius taught that those who excelled in virtue and the ability to govern should govern. In ancient Greece, Plato imagined society led by a philosopher king. Um, Aristotle argued the most meritor- the m- most meritorious meritorious should rule, with merit defined by excellence in civic virtue and what he calls phronesis, which is the practical wisdom to reason well about the common good. Um, so Sandel argues that as uh, that societies, as a result of having certain economic objectives as their center point, um, and the increasing role of technocrats in society, have meant that democracy has weakened and it narrows the common good to economic terms, um, and also it also inspires is it leads to more uninspiring political objectives and also a much more hollow public discourse. Um, so as you're an economist, but you're also someone who has considered values and thoughts that are phil- philosophically and theologically grounded. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts on a society as an economist, as a person of faith, as a citizen, in an age whereby they're, they're as according to Sandel, there's this political hollowing out of, uh, of, disc- of discourse whereby it's on economic and te- technocratic grounds and rather not on moral and philosophical grounds. I don't know if that's... It, it was a bit of a messy question, but... There's a lot in that. Um, so let me say something about merit and then um, and then talk about um, how I respond to modern political discourse. So um, I think that... So, so the idea of a common good, um, original democracies were city-states, mm. The people who were um, who had the right to vote were usually landowning men, mm. and so they had very homogenous interests. Mm. And so, um, if we leave aside those people who are disenfranchised, <laughs> like the slaves and women and so on, if we leave them out of the picture, um, democracy, so-called direct democracy, mm. where people would just vote on every issue that came up, was more likely to work when the common good was easily defined, mm. very similar with very similar interests. It's interesting, actually, that a lot of these city-states um, uh, didn't trade with others because mm-hmm. they recognised that becoming economically integrated with other states would reduce their capacity to act independently for what they saw as their common good. Mm, right, right, right. Um, so that is, that is very interesting, especially given the last conversation right. we were just finishing off on how to, um, um, you know, not be caught up with the endless pursuit of growth. One may answer may be become more isolated and become more inefficient. Mm. Um, but once you move to a more complex modern society, direct democracy doesn't work. And so you have what we have, which is representative democracy, where you vote people to effectively act as autocrats mm. until the three years is up and then, and then mm. you have a chance to get rid of them. Um, so, uh, and this is a much more, it's much more difficult to define the common good. Mm. And um, um, as I talk about in my, in my book, um, there's a... Um, there's a view that um, the messy process of democracy, uh, uh, to, to quote um, 
uh, Robert Dahl, who's an expert in the school from Princeton, he said, democracy is the gamble that the people enacting autonomously will learn to act well. So there's a very optimistic view of human nature mm. in his assessment of that. So um, what do I think of, of political discourse? Well, I think basically that um, group evil is as much a possibility as individual evil. And so I think democracy is good for many things. It's good for stopping a small elite oppressing a large majority. Um, it can be good at, um, at protecting human rights if the majority of people value human rights, but not if they don't. Mm. Um, but it's no protection against group evil. Mm. So um, Hitler was voted into power by democratic means, more or less. He cheated a bit at the end but yeah. um, and used a lot of intimidation, but he had enormous popular support. Mm. Um, in ancient Greece, the birthplace of democracy, it was a... It was a socially accepted convention. The erotic mentoring of teenagers was socially accepted. Mm, yep. Um, and um, so, you know, one wonders what people will look back on us and, and, and see things that they think are wrong and that uh, we just accepted them because mm. the whole society accepted them. So um, I, I guess it's hard to generalise what I think about... Um, modern political discourse, it probably just depends on an issue-by-issue issue basis. Mm, yeah. um, I don't think democracy... I mean, I'd, I'd put it this way. Up until about 200 years ago, at least in the West, there was a far greater interest in um, individual spirituality. Mm. And, um, and I think, in a sense, Western thinkers got a bit tired of that and they wanted to improve the world through technology... And they also wanted to improve people. There was a sense in the Enlightenment of a project of the perfectibility of man, as man meant then, both mm. male and female. There was, there was this project. And I think where we've landed eventually is that we have improved a lot of the infrastructure and institutions in society a lot, mm. and technology has enriched our lives a lot. But I don't think that there's been um, a fundamental improvement in human nature, and I wouldn't look to democracy or... Um, kind of political technology or other technology to do that. Mm. So is, is, is the implication then from what you're saying is that there's a need to to ground ourselves in, a, in, a, in new stories or old stories in terms of religion of how to live? Because I, I mean, I've had this conversation with my friend, uh, uh, well, a friend of a friend was basically talking about how he became uh, a Muslim and how that sort of gave him a grounding in terms of navigating the world in a way that it didn't if when he was an atheist. Um, someone that, as, as someone that has grown up overseas and sort of been an observer of religion, multiple religions, whether that's Hinduism, Mus Muslims, Christians. Where did you grow up? By the way? In India. So Where in India? Oh, it's a place called uh, Hyderabad. So it's yeah. a, a very uh, a diverse religious background because... It's close to Pakistan? Uh, it's there is a city in Pakistan called Hyderabad as well, oh, okay. but it's in South India. Oh, okay. But it's this city in particular is quite demograph demographically diverse due to historical reasons, but essentially there's a very big Muslim population. But mm. um, what this has meant for me is that uh, I've seen the good that religion has uh, has provided to people as well as as well as the bad. Um, but I think the common thread that aligns both of those things is that it gives people a way of organising their, 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 their communities, 
and themselves in a way that um, uh, perhaps atheists don't have as opposed to sort of a, a, a general societal progression towards, I guess, good in very vague terms, whatever that is. So I think Peter Singer, uh, ethicist, he talks about this idea of the expanding circle where as societies progress, their moral circle of society expands with it as we sort of take in uh, as we are able to become more progressive more and more others yeah exactly and eventually embraces animals which is what he would have yes precisely yes so he's an animal ethicist uh, oh not an animal ethicist he's an ethicist who uh, was an advocate for animal rights in the 70s and mm. and so on and uh, and so you know there's those sorts of secular um, views where uh, which I think as a as someone that is not a religious person that are that makes a lot of sense to me. But I, after reading the Sapiens book, which I told you about, this idea of stories I think is so embedded in uh, our, in us as people that it is important that we have some sort of stories to to uh, cling on to, not for their own sake, but for the sake of um, being happy, I suppose. I think it comes back to the idea that we're talking about fundamentals. I don't know if there's a... If the, if the meaning of life in terms of being happy, pursuing those sorts of things, if there's any other reason other than, it's sort of like a circular reason, there's no sort of fundamental, um, well, I suppose that is the fundamental value you can base your, your beliefs on trying to expand human well-being, which is, I think, what Destiny would say, that's sort of how he constructs his moral frameworks, is if it mm. expands well-being, then it's a good thing. Yeah, happiness, yeah. Um, yeah. So were you saying that... Um, in your view, is the chief benefit of something like religion is, is kind of a technology to improve people's lives and make them happier? And if it succeeds in doing that well and good, and if it doesn't, it's not so good? Uh, I, I don't know if I'd call it a technology, but certainly a tool. I mean, but it's but to, so I mean it's uh, yeah, I, supp I suppose technology is a tool. I mean, tool is technology. Or the other way, yeah. Yeah, I suppose. A, mean, a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Would you disagree with that view, that it should be an end in itself? Um, well, it matters to me. Um, I, I don't. Yeah, I do. I do disagree with that. I think that. Um, I think the most interesting question about religion is whether they're true or not, because they give such a uh, deeply different view of life. Mm -hmm. As I understand, um, some um, Eastern religions. Um, the view of life is very, very different. Mm. Um, to be spiritual is to detach from desire um, um, in some way that I don't properly understand. Um, your personhood or, your, or your, you are in some sense an illusion and, and eventually um, you'll be um, absorbed into the wholeness of things. I don't understand yeah. these religions well enough to yeah. talk authoritatively about it. I think there's a quote from Buddhism that... Um you are a drop of water, but mm. in, a, in, in a group, you're the ocean. Right. But you're still the drop of water. So in a sense, you're insignificant. And yes, your collective existence right. is, uh, makes it significant. Yeah. Uh, some sort of view of that sort. All I need for what I'm about to say now is, is just that there are vastly different ideas. Mm. Um, and um, um, you know, in, in Christianity, for example, um, there's a special place people as distinct from animals so so there so while we're to look after the animal world and I 
person that can't stand any animal cruelty, mm. they really aren't the same as people. Mm. And uh, so there'd be a big disagreement with Peter Singer on those kinds of questions. Mm. In Christianity, God is relational in this mysterious way that he's, he's three persons acting together. Mm. And so um, relationships are the core of the universe really and existed before material creation. And that's a very high view of relationships. Mm. Um, so these things are, because I'm interested in the way the world actually is, not just what makes me happy. I am I'm interested in what makes me happy, <laughs> but it's not my only interest yes, um, yes. in life. Um, and it's not the uh, the fundamental, the driving yeah. point for everything. Um, I don't think that's the most interesting question about religion, whether it makes society work sure. well or it makes people happy. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm not uninterested in those questions. Yes, I, yes, yes, I see. Um, I don't think it's taking the phenomenon seriously on its own terms. Yeah, sure. No, I... I I think, and this may warrant a separate discussion, because I mm. think religion is something that I'm very curious about. Um, yeah, that would be good, I like that. Um, but on a similar note, I think as a young person, uh, uh, a lot of the scripts that I see now, and I think they've always been the case, but perhaps it's more prevalent for young people because you're sort of developing who you are, mm. what, what is important to you, those sorts of questions. Mm. Uh, the scripts of what are the scripts of life or what are important is sort of pursuing the sort of material wealth, material accumulation, which um, which I detest for several reasons. One of the reasons is uh, uh, my dad is a very very hard worker, which um, and I, but I don't have a, a great relationship with him for several reasons, but um, he's been able to make. Uh, economic success on his own way by working so hard which is very commendable and at the same time I've seen it come at a certain cost mm. and for me it means that I even though I think economic uh, prosperity is important for example mm. I lived in India so you know you saw all sorts of mm. uh, depravity as a result mm. of people mm. not having to live in good conditions yes, and so there's a element of poverty isn't it yeah of course and so it's it's important to a degree but i think generally speaking the scripts in which uh, uh are provided to people is that uh make as much money as you can and that that mm. that then you'll get somewhere with that mm. um and going back to the eco villages question and, and if i can just interrupt there, yeah, yes, yes, yes. and loading all sorts of other language on that about your passions and your vision and yes and yes yes that's the main way you express them yeah, precisely. Having a big life and a big career. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, and going back to eco-villages and what uh, the book Limits by Georges Khalifs, that invitation to really consider what your needs are and your wants are has left me wondering... Uh, it's not left me wondering, it's left me really disenchanted with these sort of scripts of, you know, this is the way to live. Mm. And so now I'm sort of on a, uh, what you may call a spiritual journey on sort of uh, creating a new story, story precisely, mm. yeah. Um, and so I may write a manifesto. No, I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> I'll interview you. <laughs> yes, 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 for, for sure. Um, uh, there doesn't really ain't really any question here, but um, well, can I ask you a question? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so, what are the 
in the new script, what are yeah. the fundamental beliefs? What are the things okay, that are really okay. core? Yes, yes. So I've been thinking about this. Growth is not one of them, actually, even though I'd, I'd like it to be. Um, that's because I realized the other day that, um, uh, that actually, sorry, I don't know. Actually, no, I, I, I retract that sentence. Silly. Um, I'll just focus on what I do know. I think kindness is very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to be conflated with um, kindness at all costs, because obviously mm-hmm. I think there's a degree to which kindness can be uh, abused by others to put you in positions which are not ideal. So kindness with sort of a blend of goodness as well, um, which is a bit vague and confusing. But he- No, it makes sense to me, because the idea, when we were talking about limits before, I nearly said something, which is that... Um, if you think of somebody being disciplined or trained by something in life, mm. it's usually a hard constraint or a, mm. a difficulty that they face that they can't at first brush get past. Mm. And um, if that difficulty comes from somebody else, it can appear not to be kind, mm. but it can actually be good for somebody. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, so I think that distinction is necessary, but um, some sort of vague culmination of those two values i mean as a christian i'd say uh, uh, love is a very big word in christianity it's not just romantic or erotic Mm. it's much bigger sure and it includes things like kindness but it also includes things for want of a better word uh, one word a phrase a tough love sometimes yes 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 so i think that's probably a better way to to phrase it so i think that would be the first value and the second value i think is consistency Mm-hmm. Um, so for several experiences in my life that have left me feeling uh, uh, many, many things, but as a result of perhaps certain grievances or bad, bad uh, events has led me to think that it's important to have uh, beliefs that then you can apply consistency across your whole life. Mm-hmm. And so for example... Sort of integrity, like the life fits together yeah for sure for sure so for me integrity is like the is being able to apply your beliefs consistently consistently across the board so for example if they're, hopefully they're good beliefs yes 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 precisely yeah so for an example i can use is um coming across peter singer's books have been quite uh transformative in my ethics and the view that um using consistency as a principle to sort of uh, as a means to be in a person of integrity mm-hmm. and so I've been trying very hard to be a vegan mm-hmm. as a result of that which I think uh, I don't know if you know but Destiny has some very very um, anti-vegan views which, no, are, which are quite funny to yeah. listen to his debates okay. um, um, but uh, anyways but yeah so veganism is like a uh, or vegetarianism is my attempt to sort of having one belief and then trying to consistently apply it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two things that I've come across at the moment, so I don't <laughs> I don't have a thought. But um, it's sort of this attempt to identify uh, what, what the water I'm swimming in is actually much harder than I thought it would be. Mm. Um, Do you value courage? Uh, while you're thinking about it, I'll say... Yes, I, I, I do, for sure. I am... Um, I've become aware recently that I'm not as courageous as I could be. So I don't um, take risks that in hindsight I should take. Mm. And um, and I've realised that I don't think courage is something that's talked much about as a mm. virtue. I mean, every era seems to major on certain virtues mm. and ignore others. Yeah, yeah. No. Self-control would be another one that I don't think is highly valued in modern society. 
Yes, I would agree with you. I think those two things... So th this is the tr problem I'm running across. There's so many good values that you could really adopt into some sort of coherent story. Mm. And that's why I think, obviously, religion is so... Um, going back to the more consequentialist view, which I, don't, which I know you're not... Uh, not a not as you, you prefer the more means to uh, end in itself view, but I think that's why the stories are so important because they sort of summarize things that have been already been happening for centuries, and so yeah. The other reason why stories are important is wisdom. because epistemology, the science of knowing things, doesn't have much of a role for story, and that's that's a bit disturbing because most of us learn a lot of what we learn from stories. Stories, yeah. Either yeah, yeah, yeah. stories that when we're growing up, our parents or school would read to us. Yeah. Or, um, or the stories of lives as we watch other people. Yeah. So I have a bit of a suspicion that something's wrong with Western epistemology, that it doesn't have that. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of um, predisposed to think that way anyway because um, as I believe God revealed um, mm. himself to us through many stories in the Bible. So yes, yes, yes. it seems it has to be epistemologically okay. Yeah, I, I've, I've sort of come to that view from a bottom-up rather than a top-down perspective. So for context, so in like 2020, I started going to a counsellor or a therapist, and the the one of the modes of, of, of therapy is, I don't know if you're familiar, but narrative therapy, whereby you examine the stories that you tell yourself okay. and then sort of uh, taking sort of a meta position on your narratives and actually really write it. and pulling them apart and saying is this true is uh, is this uh, helpful mm, um and after those um, after that experience it's left me uh, coming across books and being uh, and movies and poems and music and being very interested in the narrative structure or just the narrative themselves mm. And then, interestingly, on a podcast, I re there was a, we interviewed a, a, a director of PwC, and um, she told this story about going to Korea, visiting a family, sitting in a group and laughing, and mm. like a, quite an intimate moment. And it's been probably like a year and a year, a year and a half since I heard that story, and I, I, I have never forgotten it. And that was very profound to me because I've had many hours of conversation with people mm. they've told me many things and i've forgotten probably 90 percent of them mm. Mm. but this sto the story was the thing i remembered mm. um and then obviously coming across the sapiens book that cognitive mm. revolution the idea that mm. you know we tell stories and then you seeing indigenous cultures basically for australians indigenous culture being the longest lasting culture and they've survived through oral story storytelling, not writing down most of them. Mm, mm. So uh, stories are something I'm, and storytelling is something I'm also very um, in awe of. I would say. Mm, mm. Um, it's getting in touch with, um, for want of a better word, the kind of humanity side of the of the human experience. So the yeah. So the um, I don't know what kind of education you had, but the education I had was a sort of um, state school, secular, very flat mm. view of what it is to be a person yeah. and um, steam vegetables <laughs> that's how I, um, I'm thinking of it no, okay. not, not much flavour yeah pretty yeah pretty and dry. so um, you're getting in touch with um, um, the, uh, I, I could use the word spiritual I could say transcendent the idea mm. that there's more to life than just um, um, straightforward matter and, mm. yeah yeah for sure 
Um, I'm tempted to continue, but I'm looking at the time. And, All right. We should do another time then. Fantastic. I want to ask you one final question. You yeah. can keep it as brief or yeah, sure. go into as much detail as you like. But we ask this to all of our guests. Yes. So the podcast is called Utopias Now. So obviously we like imagining things. Yes. So I invite you to, uh, to let us into your mind and tell us what does your utopia look like? If, if, you, if you have thought, thought about it. If not, you can keep it uh, in broad strokes. Well, um, perhaps it's... Hmm. So I guess as a Christian, I'm waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Mm. And so um, that's a time when um, all wrongs will be righted, when God takes his rightful right place in the world mm -hmm. and all injustice will cease mm. and final judgment will be meted out. Mm. Um, so it's not exactly a utopia, mm. um, but it's the, uh, it's the culmination of history mm. um, in God's in his rightful place. So that, that helps my radicalism such as it is not to burn out mm. expecting um, this to happen without God's intervention. Mm. Well, I think that's a good place to, <laughs> where we can end it. Thank you, right. Gordon, for coming on. Thanks and, very uh, much. Appreciate chatting.